invite you to stand with me now as we read verses 16 through 21 of 2 Peter chapter 1. We stand because we believe this is God's word and this is an act of honoring it. Starting in verse 16, the word of the Lord says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but... We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gathered body of Christ here at Nansman River Baptist Church. I am grateful that we can worship you together, that we can study your word together, make disciples of one another. Father, we pray for this search that our church is currently undertaking to bring in an additional uh, vocational elder in our congregation who will oversee the next generation ministries of our church, who will work with uh, students and children and preschoolers and that, that team of people who serve so faithfully here and to come alongside of parents as they make disciples in their homes. God, will you help us in that search? Because we know the end is written. And so we pray, Father, that you would guide us. You would guide the leaders of our church and those that we have recruited alongside of us to help. Thank you, God, that you will provide this need for our congregation. We pray now, Father, as we approach your word, that we will see it for what is affirmed in these verses, the truth of God, unfailing, unadulterated, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, necessary for us to know and to believe unto salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I introduced last week at the beginning of this series, the book of 2 Peter is a call to, from one generation of church leader to the next generation to persevere in the Lord. It defined the doctrine of perseverance of the saints last week thusly. All those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. Now, there's going to be eight sermons that all speak in one way or another to this idea of perseverance. And this is only sermon two, so I still have much to say, but let me tell you quickly what that doesn't mean. In case last week you came and heard me preach and left maybe with a little confusion, the idea that we affirm together as a congregation that Christians persevere to the end doesn't mean that Christians won't ever sin. It also doesn't mean that a Christian who dies with some unconfessed sin in their life will somehow be unsaved by that action. 
It also doesn't mean that a believer cannot fall even into grievous sin for a period of life and grieve the Holy Spirit by their actions and even bring reproach upon themselves and on the church. The idea that Christians will persevere to the end, as I, as I ended last week, is not intended to cause us to doubt our salvation because we have full assurance of our salvation in Scripture. But this is a letter from one generation of church leaders, the first generation of church leaders, to the next, reminding them of the importance of following Christ with their whole lives. So for us to somehow affirm the salvation of another person who is living in open rebellion against God or in apostasy, which is the full abandonment or rejection of the faith, or someone who has chosen to live a life contrary to the moral law of God, for us to affirm their salvation and to say that they are truly born again would be doing a disservice to the truth of Scripture. Now, listen, I'm not the final arbiter of if someone is saved or not. What do we do with someone who is clearly not of the faith or someone who has seemingly wandered from the faith? We remind them of the truth of the gospel and call them to repentance, believing that God alone knows the heart and that he alone knows who he has regenerated and caused to be born again. Yes, this is a fine line and at times a touchy subject. But remember, this is a Christian letter is written to believers and it is a call for them to walk in continual faith until the end. In these verses that we see today, Peter is going to provide for his reader the only sure resource that we have for persevering in truth. The main idea of today's sermon is that believers persevere in truth by trusting in God's word. This is a foundational sermon, I believe, for our congregation. It's, I hope, I proclaim the truth of God's word week in and week out over years of pastoral ministry here. But there are some sermons, there are some passages that speak so clearly to the core beliefs of our church that they really serve as foundational. This, I believe, is one of them. The first core belief of our church, of which we have six, is that the Bible is God's word. It is therefore... Whole, uh, completely true, wholly authoritative, and must be proclaimed. This is the argument that Peter makes in the context of a call to persevere. That scripture is God's word. And because scripture is God's word, it is true. And because it is God's word, it carries the authority of God. And so we must listen to it. And so as we seek to persevere in this life, we would do well to heed Peter's words because it is only through God's word that we can know his truth. And by his truth, we persevere. Peter is going to make a progressive argument here in these verses, and we're going to see that argument progress in three stages. The first is this, trusting the word as historical truth. Look back with me in verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The beginning of Peter's argument here about God's word is that it is historically accurate. It is truth that what is affirmed in scripture is true. And what Peter does here in this second letter to the churches is he reminds them of things that he saw with his own eyes. This is an important note when we think about the inspiration of the scripture, particularly the inspiration of the New Testament. Is the books that we have of the New Testament. And while there are people that want to say that there are all kind of books that are cut out of the New Testament and that we ought to listen to all of these other ancient writings, none of them, none of those other ancient writings fall into the same category as the books of the New Testament for one primary reason. The books that are written in the New Testament were all written during the lifetime of the apostles. None of those other books that people want to say were cut out of the New Testament were written during the lifetime of the apostles. Some were written in the second, third, even fourth century, hundreds of years in some cases after the apostles. And hear what Peter says here. Peter says, you can trust that I'm telling you the truth because I saw this with my own eyes. It's important for us to recognize that all of the New Testament was written in the lifetime of the apostles because the apostles then could have spoken out against it as Peter is going to do in chapter two about some teaching that has found its way into the church. So this wasn't written centuries later by someone who didn't see or hear it. Peter is saying, I was there. And he's using a very specific event. Now, Peter could have used any event he wanted, but I think he used one of the most meaningful events in all of the Gospels, the books of the Bible that tell us the story of Jesus. This event, for instance, is recorded in Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is going to take three of his disciples up on a mountaintop and they're going to experience something rather incredible. We read in Matthew 17, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. So Peter, the same one that wrote this, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is known as the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus, fully man and fully God, shows his glory to three of his disciples. If you were here when we were preaching through Daniel in the previous series Daniel sees the risen Christ, or sees the, the pre-incarnate Christ, excuse me, uh, uh, standing above the river in all of his glory. And that's the same thing that uh, Peter, James, and John here see. And this is such an 
pivotal moment in their lives. Peter says, let's build some tents. Moses and Elijah are here. Jesus is here. This is great. Let's build some tents and just live here, Jesus. Could we do that? Because I don't ever want to leave. And of course, he's interrupted by the voice of the Father who says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And they look up and Jesus alone is there. Obviously, this has stuck with Peter. Years later, decades later, writing to the churches, he reminds them that he saw this with his own eyes. Peter is insisting that this event really took place. And not only is he insisting that this event really took place, that the point that Peter is trying to make, that the truth of scripture is not negotiable, that it's not based off of some uh, something that was made up, that it wasn't, it's not based off of what he calls cleverly devised myths, that these are true accounts that the people who wrote the Bible saw with their own eyes. What Peter is describing here now is known as the doctrine of inerrancy. The inerrancy of scripture on the back of your, on the back of your sermon notes, I have a definition there for you. It's a little lengthy, but it's to, to fully understand what we're saying here, I think a lengthy definition is helpful. David Dockery defines inerrancy of scripture this way. When all the facts are known, the Bible, in its original writings, properly interpreted in light of the culture and communication means that had developed by the time of its composition, will be shown to be completely true and therefore not false, in all that it affirms to the degree of precision intended by the author in all matter related to God and his creation. When we say that we believe the Bible is completely true, what we are affirming is that the Bible doesn't tell us anything is true that is actually false. That when the Bible says something happened, it happened. It doesn't mean that the authors of scripture didn't use human language. It doesn't mean they didn't, for instance, use symbolic language or round numbers or the, the, the uh, literary patterns of the day. They certainly did those things. But the scriptures do not affirm anything that is false. The scripture will, to a letter, prove true. In the way that the Holy Spirit inspired these men to write it, it is God's truth. The Old Testament affirms this in multiple places. One of them is in Proverbs 30, which says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. God does not lie. His word is true. There is no greater doctrine of the Christian church that has been under uh, as prolonged an attack as this one. And there's a reason for this. You see, if the world can attack one thing about Christianity that will seek to bring down the entire structure, it's the inerrancy of scripture. It's the truth of God's word. This is why it has been so heavily attacked, not just over the last years or decades, but even over the last centuries. Because if we can deny the scripture is true, then we can deny that the scripture is from God. Because if it is from God, who does not lie, it must be true. Now, as I said, Peter is following a progressive argument in these verses that will end with a call to recognize the authority of scripture. 
I'm not going to explain the authority of Scripture until I get to it, but I want to make the connection between inerrancy and authority because without inerrancy, we can't really have the authority of God's Word. In 1978, a group of Protestant scholars gathered together in Chicago to address, and so 1978, we're talking over 40, almost 45 years ago now, to, to address the attack on the inerrancy of Scripture. And they drafted what was known as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. It's a great thing for you to read. It's not all that long. I would encourage you, you could Google, not now, later, the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy and read it. It's something the elders of our congregation have affirmed together that we believe. And part of that statement says this, the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total d divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. Listen, the Bible is not true. The Bible is not authoritative. <laughs> and so we must believe that the word of God is true, that what it affirms is accurate. Number two, trusting the word as transformative truth. Look at verse 19 with me. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. The second argument that Peter makes is that the, we trust the word because the word is transformative. But notice the transition that he makes at the beginning of this verse. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now that can be a little difficult for us to understand. What does he mean when he says that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed? Well, clearly in Peter's mind, when he says the prophetic word, he is thinking about the Old Testament. Now, Peter is going to make an argument later, and I'm going to save it for when we get there in chapter three, that the writings of Paul, remember this is likely happening when Peter and Paul are both imprisoned in Rome. He's likely writing this. And, and Paul's writing some of the last books that he will write in the New Testament. And, and Peter's going to affirm that as scripture, as worthy to pay attention to. But when we read things like prophetic word or scripture in the New Testament, we have to remember who these guys are and where they come from. What they are viewing as scripture is the Old Testament. I don't want to make the argument that Peter knew that he, in writing this, was, was, writing, the, was writing the Holy Scriptures. I think by this point, they had some inkling. Well, they knew that the church was beginning to use these things, and, and Peter's going to affirm that of the writings of Paul later. But here, it's, it's the Old Testament Scripture, which is more fully confirmed. It's more fully confirmed because it's been fulfilled in Christ. When I preach through books of the Old Testament, and we always bounce back and forth from Old Testament books to New Testament books, sometimes I'll have people ask me, they'll come and they'll say, they'll say preacher, every week you're, you're talking about Jesus, but we're talking about Jesus from the Old Testament. I was like, yeah, because the, G, the, the, the Old Testament talks about Jesus. The, the Old Testament's about Jesus. It's all pointing towards Jesus. And this is what Peter affirms. It's more fully confirmed because we've now seen Peter, seen with his eyes, Jesus. But I don't think that's the only thing that, that Peter is saying here. It's not 
only fully confirmed because he's seen Jesus and they know that Jesus came to fulfill those things. The, the word of God is more fully confirmed than anything else we may ascribe to. We live in a day that exalts individualism and individual ideas and individual truths, if there is such a thing, which I don't believe there is, that exalts those over nearly everything else. And that has found its way into the church where, where what people want to do is they want to craft their own version of Christianity. That, that we pick and choose from scripture, we pick and choose from kind of some worldly ideas of morality, we pick and choose even from things that make us feel good, that we want to believe is true, and we kind of craft for ourselves a personal faith. And here's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying that, that the truth of God's word, the truth of scripture, outweighs how you feel. It outweighs what you want to be true. It outweighs what other worldly systems say is true. That everything must be tested against scripture because it is more fully confirmed than any other claim of truth. Now, let me be clear about something. There is truth outside of scripture. Sometimes people will preach on this and, and they'll say things like, the only place we can go and find any truth is in scripture. That's not true. I believe, as much as I hate to say it, math books are true. I don't like math. I was not good at math. I can't help my teenage son at math, right? His mama has to do that part. But there's truth in that, right? Down to the very basics, you know, Two plus two is four. That, that's truth. It's God-established truth, and the Bible doesn't have to teach us that. It's true because it's found in what God has established in natural law as truth. Now, if the Bible affirmed something else, we would go to the Bible. So everything is tested against it. So there is other truth, but none of that other truth will, be, will contradict Scripture because Scripture is more fully confirmed than any other truth in the world. And Peter says, we will do well to pay attention to it because this truth transforms our lives like a lamp transforms a dark place. Imagine, if you will, darkness of night. And somebody turns on a light, turns on a lamp, lights a candle. The entire room is transformed. Why? Because light has that ability, right? And this is the same ability that the word of God has. The word of God transforms our lives. Peter says, pay attention to the word of God because the word of God will shine in your life like a lamp in a dark place and it will transform every part of you. And this is why this is written in the context of perseverance. Because when we persevere in life, when we persevere in the Christian life, we give ourselves over to the light of God to shine in the dark places of our lives that maybe we don't want it to shine in. 
at least for a period of time. Maybe, maybe we don't want to give that part over to the truth of God's word. And here's what Peter says. You do well to pay attention to it, to let this light shine in your lives. The apostle Paul writes it like this in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What's, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying there that the way that we are transformed into a life of sacrifice to God is by having our minds transformed. And what is it that transforms our mind? The word of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect that we can find from God. The word is what does that. And it does it into every nook and cranny of our lives. It may not do it right away. It may take a very, very long time. Actually, I think that's the argument Peter makes is it will take a very, very long time. But as we submit ourselves to the truth of God's word, there is great freedom in that light shining in places that have hidden in the darkness for oh so long. Peter here is using terminology that is found in the Old Testament. When we're done with 2 Peter, we're going to spend actually the next three summers uh, in Psalm 119, the longest chapter of all of the Bible. We're going to divide it into three parts and go for three summers, basically seven weeks uh, at, at a time, thinking about how God's word does these things in our lives. I think it'll be very helpful for us. So we're going to start that uh, in, in late June. But listen to one of the things that the psalmist affirms in Psalm 119. He says, your word is a lamp to my feet, light to my path. So Peter is using this Old Testament idea of light, that God's word is a light that we would do well to pay attention to because not only does it shine in our lives, but it illuminates the path forward for us as we persevere. You say, okay, well, what parts of God's word? Is it, is it some of it? I actually saw somebody making this argument just this week. Well, you know, Jesus affirmed this or Jesus didn't say this. And so I'm just going to listen to Jesus. If you happen to have a Bible that the words of Jesus are in red, there's nothing wrong with your Bible, but know this, the people who put the words in red decades ago when they started doing that, they did that because they wanted you to believe that those words were more important than the other ones. You, you, just, you just need to understand the history of that. And can I tell you something? If you have a Bible that Jesus' words are in red, those words are not more important than the black ones. It's, it's all God's word. Every single syllable of it is God's word. Now, none of, it is, none of the black words are going to contradict the red ones. And none of the red ones are going to contradict the black ones. It's all God's word. Probably writing to Timothy at the same time or around the same time that Peter is writing uh, to the churches, Paul writes this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How much of scripture? All scripture. And don't miss the tide of perseverance in Paul's words to Timothy. What does the scripture do? It teaches, it reproves, it corrects, it trains. How? In righteousness. Why? So that 
we may be complete so that we may persevere to the end. This is what a dedication to the truth of God's word does for us. It serves as a light in our lives that shows us the path to the end. It's the argument that Peter makes. He says, until, what does he say at the end of verse 19? Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What's the morning star that arises in your hearts? It's Jesus. Until the day dawns is the coming of Christ. So until Jesus comes back, what we have is the truth of God's word. What we have is the Holy Spirit indwelling us, helping us understand the truth of God's word. And scripture will continue to do its work in our lives until the end. So we can rely on it. Not only as factually accurate, we can rely on it as transformative. So let me just be really helpful, I think, for you. If there's an area of your life that doesn't look like Jesus, here would be my question. Have you sought in Scripture to find what God would guide you in and submit yourself to it? As painful as that may be, as hard as it may be for you to do for a period of time, submit yourself to the truth of God's Scripture, and here's what you will find slowly, little by little, your mind will be transformed by the word of God. Number three, trusting the word as authoritative truth. The last two verses with me, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 has two different It's interesting that verse 20, which is about interpretation of scripture, has two different interpretations. I'll be honest with you. I find that that actually kind of helpful because the scripture means what it means, right? And there is a meaning. You don't get to have your version of it. I don't get to have my version of it. I'm supposed to submit myself by the power of the Holy Spirit to my reading of it. You're supposed to do the same thing. And if we come to different conclusions, we can't affirm that we're both right at least in most places, there are a couple of places in scripture that the author may have intended a double meaning. Maybe Peter did that here. I don't think that's what he did here. Uh, But one of us will ultimately prove right because the scripture means what the scripture means. What the Holy Spirit inspired that author to write is what it meant and was what it will always mean. And that may be what Peter is saying here. He may be talking about the reader's interpretation. And that's the way that some people read this, which by the way, is true and we can affirm that elsewhere in scripture, which is why I don't need to correct it. If that's your understanding of this first, I think that's okay because that's, that's an argument we can make from elsewhere in scripture. But I don't think it's what Peter is actually saying. I don't think Peter's talking about the reader's interpretation. I think Peter is talking about the author's interpretation of the events that they are writing down, which is why I think that Uh, the ESV, which is what I'm preaching from here, that translation does a good job helping us when it says that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So it's, it's, it's looking back towards the actual author. So Peter's going back to his original argument saying, we didn't make this stuff up, but it is what? From God. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, why does this matter? Because if God has spoken in his words, then what God has said is our ultimate authority for everything that God has addressed in his word. That if God has addressed a subject in his word, 
then God's word trumps all. It, it, it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what our culture wants to believe. It doesn't even matter what the church affirms. What the scripture affirms is truth. This doctrine is known as the authority of scripture. On the back of your, connect, on the back of your um, sermon notes is another definition. The authority of scripture is that all the words in scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. And if we are going to say that we are a church and a people and a person who affirms the truth of God's word, then we must also affirm this, that if we say God didn't mean that, I don't need to listen to that, then we are denying the authority of scripture that it has in our lives. We must listen to scripture because it is God's word. Over 450 years ago, in really what was the second generation of the Reformation period, a great confession of faith was penned in England, known as the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession is long, and we wouldn't affirm as a church everything in the Westminster Confession, but I believe we would affirm this. Listen to the beauty of these words. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. If it's true, and it's from God, then it has all authority in the life of believers. And we would do well to listen to it. In 1 Peter chapter, in the, his previous letter, at the beginning of it in chapter one, Peter writes this, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, so he's speaking about their salvation. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains for ever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The truth of scripture, which has drawn men for centuries to salvation in Christ alone is an imperishable seed. It is the only place that we can know true, sure things about God and his free offer of salvation to all who believe. It is the truth of the gospel for all generations. So while this, again, as just about all of the sermons in 2 Peter will be, is a sermon for Christians, I recognize there may be Christians with us, non-Christians with us this morning. And my appeal to you would be this, believe in the truth of God's word. Because in it, here is what you will find. You will find that God is holy and is separate and is above all else. That we, the crowning work of his creation, 
are depraved and dead in our trespasses and sin, but yet God still loves us. And in his love for us, while we were yet sinners, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place so that we might find life. This is the truth of scripture today. This is the imperishable seed that is proclaimed to you. So what is the call to the non-believer today? It is to believe in the imperishable seed of the gospel right now for your salvation. Put no faith in the ways of this world. Put no trust even in your own devices. Believe in Jesus, my friend, and be saved. So what? Church family, we ask ourselves this now in light of Peter's progressive description of God's word. Do I trust in God's word alone as his rich provision of truth for his persevering church? Do I trust in God's word alone as his rich provision of truth for his persevering church? I'll remind you of what we saw as truth last week in our first sermon in 2 Peter. Peter writes, his divine power has been granted to us All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of of sinful desires. This is a reminder for us that God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. And where is it that God has spoken about life and godliness? In the scripture. He has done so in his word for us. So all that we need to obey God, all that we need to persevere in this life, the truth of that is found in God's word. I want to end today by thinking about some of the last words of Jesus over his disciples. John records some things about the end of the life of Jesus that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't don't necessarily record. And one of the things John gives us is a more full picture of what happened in the upper room, the last night of Jesus' life. He had gathered in the upper room to receive the Passover meal with his disciples and, and all of the gospel authors tell us different things about that room and events that took place. But John records for us what is known in John 17 as the high priestly prayer. It's the longest prayer of Jesus in the Bible. And it was his final, at least recorded prayer, vocalized prayer to the Father for his disciples. And we're not gonna look at all of it. We're gonna look at it, a piece of it. Listen to what he says in verses 12 through 19 of John 17. Again, this is Jesus speaking to the Father. And notice the number of times that we either see Scripture or a synonym for Scripture. While I was with them, Jesus says, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That's a Jew. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hid them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in 
truth. Of all of the things that Jesus could pray to the Father for his beloved disciples on the last night of his life, do you notice the major theme of the high priestly prayer? Oh God, keep them in your truth. Keep them in your word. Keep them in your scripture. Keep them, oh God, sanctify them in truth. Make them who you want them to be, little by little, progressively as they persevere in this life in a world of which is not their own. And how do they do it, Jesus says? In the truth of God's word because your word is truth. Hear me, church. As we persevere together in this life, we do well to have a firm foundation that is the truth of God's word. Together here in just a moment, we will respond by affirming that truth. We're going to sing a, a new earth song that uses words that were written back in the 1700s. The first line of uh, the first stanza of this song says this, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said to you who unto Jesus for refuge has fled. Here's the call, Christian, persevere in the truth of God's word. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, that you did not leave us alone, but that you gave us your word so that we might know your truth and persevere in it. Help us, God, to allow that light to shine in the dark places of our soul. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to transform us from one degree of glory to another as our minds are renewed by the truth of God's word. I pray for our church, that we would be a church that stands firmly on the authority and inerrancy of scripture in a day that would so desperately seek to challenge it. Help us be reminded from John 17, we are not of this world, just as Jesus is not of this world. Thank you, God. We pray that you would transform lives now in Christ's name, amen. If you are with us, you heard the appeal to the gospel to believe in Jesus unto salvation. At the end of our service, I'll be with our connect team in the lobby. Would you come find me? Let's talk about how you can follow Jesus, how you can begin to submit yourself to the truth of his word, and how you can become a part of our congregation as we do so, as we persevere together. For the rest of us, I want to make one point really clear. We're about to stand and sing, as I've already read some of those words, we're about to sing in part about God's word. We are not worshiping the Bible. This was not a sermon calling you to worship the Bible. It's a sermon calling us to recognize it as the authority of God who we do worship now together. Would you stand with me?